On the afternoon of November 3rd, 1996, I was sitting alone in my one-bedroom apartment in Nashville, Tennessee, probably doing one of my three main activities when I was not covering high school wrestling for the Tennessean. One, playing Xbox. Two, jerking off to the insert photo from Tanya Tucker's recently released box set. Three, dreaming of getting out of Nashville. Then the phone rang. Jeff, a woman said, this is Bambi Wolf, the chief of reporters at Sports Illustrated, and I'm calling to officially offer you a job working for the magazine. I truly couldn't believe it. As a boy on Emerald Lane in Mayo Pack, New York, my neighbor, a man named John Daly, would bundle his old Sports Illustrateds and leave them for the garbage man. When no one was looking, I'd scurry over, grab them, lock myself in my room, and absorb each one cover to cover. As a high schooler, I once told my mother I'd be a writer for SI. Come on, she said, you have to be realistic. No, I replied, I'm telling you. In college at the University of Delaware, I'd study the magazine's leads, transitions, paragraph structures. Sports Illustrated was my Bible, my dream. And now I was being offered a job. Bambi told me I'd start as a reporter, which meant checking facts and stories written by the magazine's slew of all-star writers. But, she said, you'll have a chance to write if you work hard and you show your talent. Then, before hanging up, she told me one more thing. We're excited to have you, Bambi Wolf said. Welcome to the bullpen. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. This is the 200th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang, a deep dive into the mid-1990s world of the Sports Illustrated bullpen, where youngins were hired, and egos ran amok, and expense reports were used, and magazines were king, and glorious writing careers came to be born. A warning to young journalists just entering the field, you will never experience anything like this, and I'm sorry. This is episode number 200, welcome to the bullpen. Dad, this podcast sucks, and so does your hair. Diary Entry, December 5th, 1996. Three weeks since I left Nashville, and tomorrow starts the Sports Illustrated Odyssey. I don't feel nervous or really overly excited, but I should. This is what I've waited for, a shot at SI. I start as a scrub, Jeff Perlman fact checker. Let's see where I end up. It's December 6, 1996, and I am entering the front of the Time and Life building, located on the corner of 50th and 6th in Manhattan. I'm a native New Yorker, but not a native of this New York. I'm from the Sticks, a small town called Mayopac, or depending on who's asked, Mahopac, New York, where there are a bunch of pizza joints, a diner, Rodex Deli, and more recently, a slew of red Make America Great Again caps. So moving to New York City, it's a big deal. And moving to New York City from Tennessee to start a job at Sports Illustrated, huge deal. Anyhow, I cruise through the main entrance, and after signing in, I take the elevator to the 18th floor, home of Sports Illustrated's main editorial headquarters. When the doors open, I'm greeted by a woman named Kirsten, who welcomes me and walks me down a long hallway. I'm a kid in a candy store, or more accurately, a late September call-up from Community College to the New York Yankees. My hands are coated in sweat. My heart is in my throat. I'm wearing a gray suit recently purchased for $80 at Dillard's, and the outfit screams newbie. 
No one here is wearing a suit. It's khakis, jeans, t-shirts, very casual. As I walk behind Kirsten down a long hallway, I see swimsuit calendars hanging in various offices. I see two guys tossing around a Nerf football. I hear Sports Center blaring from a TV. It's all blur because I am freaking the fuck out. Again, I need to make this clear. For me, reaching Sports Illustrated is the equivalent of an aspiring singer landing a duet with Beyonce. It's a local actor being plucked from Bumblefuck to headline Broadway. It's my personal mecca, arguably the world's biggest magazine, land of more than 3 million subscribers, home to writers like Rick Riley and Gary Smith and William Knack, who are legitimate superstars. What the hell am I doing here? This exclusive Pro Football Hall of Fame coaches shirt. Both the tough video and great coaches shirt are free with your paid subscription to Sports Illustrated, the magazine that gets you into sports like no one else. Okay, calm down, Jeff. Deep breath. I reach Bambi Wolf's office at the end of the hallway. It's large, in the corner, windows aplenty. Someone is already there sitting on the couch, another new reporter on her first day. Her name is Jennifer Wolf, mid 20s brown shoulder-length hair, unrelated to our new boss, just the same last name. Bambi welcomes us, tells us some details of the job. The bullpen is referred to as a bullpen because it's the place where youngsters are oftentimes developed as they fight to reach the big leagues, aka a senior writer gig at Sports Illustrated. With rare exception, its denizens are green and hungry. They're generally either hired out of college or after a couple years at a newspaper, as was my case, having put in two and a half years at the Tennessean. Your stated job in the bullpen is to check facts. The magazine's writers file their stories, and you are responsible for making sure every single detail is correct. I'm not overstating that. These days, we live in a sloppy world of sloppy tweets and sloppy blog posts. But back in the day of SI, if Tom Verducci filed a story saying that Turner Ward was hitting 179 for the Milwaukee Brewers, you, the reporter, better damn well be sure it was 179, not 180, certainly not 181. You also better know that Turner Ward spells his name T-U-R-N-E-R-W-A-R-D, that he plays for the Brewers. And just for effect, it might not hurt to know his lifetime stats, because an editor will probably ask. This is Linda Ann Marsh, my former colleague and the longest tenured reporter in SI history. Linda arrived in the magazine in the 1960s and left in the early 2000s. She was the best reporter ever, thorough, precise, detailed, everything I wasn't. Here she explains the process of fact-checking an SI story back in the day. Well, the story came in. You would read it, and uh, you would touch base with the, the writer um, to get particularly, well, if it was a, a feature or, you know, a big piece, like a feature or a bonus piece, you touch base with the writer to get their contact information of the people they talked to that they interviewed during the course of, uh, you know, doing the story. Uh, some things were obvious. If it was a game story where you already knew who to call, you'd call, you had the numbers of the, of the teams and the, you know, PR people. At the same time, every magazine had a um, libel lawyer. And the libel lawyer was assigned and had to read the story and they would call you up early in the process and tell you what concerns they had, if any. And then you had to satisfy their concerns, making sure the, the information was accurate to their satisfaction. I can remember one time a lawyer saying to me, they asked me about some incident and I said, well, that person actually had died. And they said, oh, they're dead. Well, dead people can't sue. And I said, well, my standards are a little higher than that, so I think I'll go ahead. Or meanwhile, the story was going through the copy process, you know, the copy people were reading it. And then, of course, it got edited by the senior editor. 
then you'd see what changes they had, always had changes and questions. Then it went to the assistant managing editor who read it and then had made changes and put more information in it. And uh, then the layout was being done. It went back to the copy room. And then to me or the uh, reporter had to put all their changes on that copy and hand it over to the senior editor for fitting. And the senior editor fit it to the layout. And then you got to read it uh, as the last read before it went, it got sent out. And that last read was done by the senior editor in conference, the reporter. And um, it used to be an, an assistant managing editor, but then became a late read copy editor who had not worked on the story previously. And that was the last time to make any tweaks or changes or something like that. And this is Matt Rudy, another bullpen colleague, on the utter absurdity of the system, which is to say, the way you'd get in trouble for a mistake in a story you checked is if an SI reader wrote a letter to the magazine, a physical letter on paper, written usually with a pencil or pen, complaining about a mistake. It was bonkers. The way the way the whole thing was monitored was absurd, which was was based on letters that people sent it. So it wasn't monitored by anybody in the building. It was monitored by strangers out in the world. And if they found a mistake in one of your stories, you would get a, a folder with a copy of the letter in it sitting on your chair. And and the visceralness of that walking into your office, the visceralness of seeing that that folder on your chair. I'm in my own office in my house. And if somebody leaves something on my chair now, it's like, I think it's a trigger just like because the consequences of that were so negative at the time. Was the dream to become an elite fact checker? Definitely not. Truth be told, I was warned early on that you didn't want to be too good at fact checking lest the magazine decide that you were better at verifying Turner Ward stats than writing pieces on your own. Wait, I digress. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Jennifer Wolf, my new colleague, sits to my right as Bambi tells us all about the bullpen. Your office is here. Your office is there. You work these hours. These are the days. This is where the cafeteria is. And here's how we check facts, our system, our methods. And Bambi, she's warm, but she's also businesslike. It's clear we won't be coddled, but it's also clear she's available for questions. Then, abruptly, she has to excuse herself. And Jen and I start to talk. She's a recent Dartmouth grad, but unlike any Ivy Leaguer I've ever met. First, she's Canadian. Second, she transferred to Dartmouth from Miami-Dade Community College. And her mom was a Miami real estate agent who, not that long into future, would put Jen on the phone with O.J. Simpson. It's a crazy story. Jen cursed like a sailor. She had a tremendously unique and joyful laugh. (laughs) She knew dick about sports. I like her immediately. This is Jen Wolf. I'm overdressed for the job. Oh, yeah. Like I remember the first day I was like wearing a houndstooth jacket and a skirt and heels like <laughs> such an idiot. And everybody else is dressed like, you know, maybe a button down or be like as, as dressed up as anyone would get. When Bambi returns, we are walked through the bullpen. It's a long hallway with a bunch of offices, almost all outfitted with two desks, two computer monitors, two phones. The carpet is gray. The walls are gray. All the offices have nameplates by the doors identifying the occupants. John Wertheim, Grant Wall, Rick Lipsy, Paul Gutierrez, Matt Rudy, Linda Ann Marsh. The big name writers rarely, if ever, come to the office. They're spread across the country, living the life. In this office, they're primarily editors and scrub reporters, like me. Anyhow, we reach an office and Bambi motions toward me. 
This is yours, she says. You'll be sharing it with BJ. I enter, and there sits BJ Schechter. He reaches out his hand and introduces himself. He's friendly, engaging, brown hair, enthusiastic eyes. We quickly bond over a shared college experience. I'm from the University of Delaware. BJ attended Northeastern. Both schools are members of the defunct America East Conference. We bond over Spencer Dunkley, Lamont U, Blue Hen Huskies basketball classes nobody else here is aware of. And this is important and a recurring theme throughout my time in the bullpen. BJ and I, we have chips on our shoulders. Sports Illustrated has what's known as a Princeton pipeline, or to be a little less precise, an Ivy League pipeline. Put differently, a ton of the higher-ups attended America's most prestigious institutions, including Bill Colson, the managing editor, and Peter Carey, the executive editor. They're both Princeton grads. And the bullpen, as well, is overflowing with the elitely educated. They're everywhere. And while the majority are great people with few errors, a good number seem to take delight in dropping when I was at Princeton references. This is John Walters, a reporter and Notre Dame alum. Do you feel like there was factory and Ivy League thing at SI? Absolutely. Even more so when I got there than when you got there. I mean, at SI, you had to like go fact check whether it's hip hop or hip or hop hop. Is that right? Hip hip or hip hop. Hip hip or hip hop. But you could write old Nassau and never even have a question mark after it. Old Nassau is a euphemism for Princeton. And you'd see old Nassau in stories and no one ever said like, well, is everyone going to get old Nassau? Because I didn't. And you probably didn't. Right. You had to learn it. Yeah. So like, you know, this, this whole like, and I, I go to the top. I, I mean, I think Peter Carey, at least when I was there, was uh, setting a tone for this sort of, you know, we're still, it's still the 1950s and, and there's a sense of entitlement, but also this sense of like, if you didn't go to an Ivy League school, how can you really be as good as us? So while neither BJ nor I were particularly blue collar, here, inside Sports Illustrated's offices, we felt very blue collar. This is BJ. Back when we got there in in 96, and and people don't realize how big SI was at the time. It was bigger than ESPN. It it was a who's who of the best talent in the industry um, and so competitive. And I came with that same chip and and, uh, wanted to prove that not only could I succeed there and stay, you know, have have a long, successful career there, um, but I belonged. Diary entry, December 8th, 1996. SI has been okay so far, but moving up will be tough. There's so much competition, though I plan on outworking them all. Most important thing is to keep my style, bust my ass, and work, work, work. So, before I continue with this podcast, I have a confession to make. Back in 1996, when I started Sports Illustrated, I was a supersonic, unambiguous, one-of-a-kind douchebag. You can hear from that last diary entry, quote, the most important thing is to keep my style? For fuck's sake, I didn't even have a style, except for overloading everything I wrote with adjectives and exaggerations. But I was ridiculously cocky. Hardly about most things. Women, certainly not. Clothing, no. But deep down, I really did believe I would outwork anyone and everyone and force the decision makers at Sports Illustrated to notice me, which certainly rubbed some of my colleagues wrongly. This is Paul Gutierrez, my fellow bullpen denizen. I distinctly remember hearing you say, uh, I don't know why everybody's pissed at me. I work harder than anybody in this magazine or in the bullpen. And I'm pretty sure I curse. And I said, excuse me, what the F did you just say or something like that? It's so interesting. I, 
could hear myself like it actually me. <laughs> you say that because I don't remember saying that, but I could hear my cocky little self saying that. I'm sure, you know, like I could totally hear it. And like wearing, yeah, wearing a Kangol in a Peyton Manning, Tennessee jersey. <laughs> I guess if I'm being sincere, I didn't care. I wanted to be an SI senior writer, not best pals with Paul or Lauren Mooney or Julian Rubenstein. So from pretty much the day I arrived in the bullpen, I worked hard. And I'm not saying others didn't work hard too. They did. I just knew what I wanted and it wasn't to check facts. So on off days, when the office was largely empty and there were no statistics to confirm or names to triple check, I'd come open up a book called the COSIDA Directory, which was an alphabetical listing of every college sports information department in the country. And I'd call school after school after school after school after school. Hello, A.T. Still University. Hello, Abilene Christian University. Hello, Adelphi University. Yeah, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a new reporter at Sports Illustrated, and I'm wondering if you guys have any unique story ideas. I had to have called at least 200 colleges and universities. And then, come Thursday, I'd walk into the offices of Rich O'Brien and Jack McCallum, the two guys who edited the scorecard notes section at the front of the magazine, and I'd pitch. I never told anyone how I was getting these ideas, just that I had them. Before long, I was on a roll. April 14th, 1997, Lee McKinley, the basketball coach at tiny Fontbon College in St. Louis for the last 10 seasons, has always believed in heeding the input of his charges. But then two autumns ago, Denny Golden, Fontbon's president, urged McKinney to have his players vote to select the starting lineups before each game. May 12th, 1997. Last November 2nd, Waynesburg College could do nothing to stop senior running back A.J. Pitterino of Hartwick College in Oneonta, New York. In leading the Hawks to a 42-14 win over Waynesburg, Pitterino carried 46 times for 443 yards to set an NCAA all-division rushing record. Six months later, however, the Yellow Jackets appear to have thrown Pitterino for a loss of seven crucial yards. June 23, 1997, when C.J. Bruton, a 6'2 point guard from Australia, signed a letter of intent with Iowa State earlier this year, he was upfront about his basketball experience. Yes, in 1994, he had played for money with the Perth Wildcats, but not for much. The other goldmine for me was this thing called Advanced Text. There were stories that only appeared in uh, maybe a third of Sports Illustrated. It had something to do with regional advertising and extra pages, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I just know there was an editor named Myra Gelband who encouraged reporters to find quirky and funky ideas and pitch them. If Myra approved, you'd be traveling, then writing an 800 to 1,000 word piece. My first ad text ran on April 7th, 1997. It was a profile of a 31-year-old sneaker collector named Ronnie Duquette who stalked out the parking lots of NBA arenas, desperate for players to give him their used kicks. Other ad text assignments followed. A look at Jan Hutchinson, Bloomsburg University's field hockey coach. Coverage of LaSalle University's return to college football. A deep dive into Izzy Kaplan, long-ago sports photographer for the New York Tribune. Horseback riding in Goliad, Texas with former NFL coach Bum Phillips. That was a fun one. It was all going wonderfully. I checked facts most of the time, write and find story ideas in the gaps. And it was definitely paying off. One day in the summer of 1997, Bill Colson, the managing editor, sent out an office-wide memo that read, I am pleased to announce the promotion of Kelly Anderson to senior writer and of Lars Anderson, Mark Bechtel, Seth Davis, Jeff Perlman, and Grant Wall to writer-reporter. Holy shit, was I giddy. In less than nine months, I'd been promoted to a position that meant a little less fact-checking, a little more reporting. Everything was going great. Sort of. Diary entry, May 10th, 1997. Last night, I threw up in Dan's apartment. This coming after four or five drinks and hitting on this witch. Really, she was a witch in a bar. She was hot, tongue ring, fishnets. Still, a witch? My social life needs some work. 
I feel like one thing I haven't discussed enough about the bullpen is the bonding. Yeah, there was a raw competitiveness, but there was also a connective tissue, a sense of wonder. We were young and single and living in New York City and working for Sports Illustrated. It was the place to be, journalism luxury personified. And if you don't believe me, I mean, there's so many stories to tell. Before I arrived, for example, the entire staff, the entire staff, was flown to Atlanta to spend a few days at the 1996 Olympic Games. That's not an exaggeration. Here's Matt Rudy, a reporter who was on the trip. There was a hotel that they took over, and we all were in the hotel, and everybody had some little assignments here and there to go do. But for the most part, it was wake up, go downstairs. There was a desk in the lobby where they had tickets to every event, and they had the schedule up. And you could go up to this desk and say, oh, I want to go watch, you know, team handball. And I want to go watch, you know, X, whatever, whatever you picked, you could go watch. And you went and watched the events and came back at night and played pop a shot in the bar and drank lots of beer. And they had a massive party at the end where they hired a bunch of the gold medalists to come and pal around in the party. And Huey Lewis played, which is you know not these days doesn't seem like the most progressive choice ever, but you, you look around and you're in this hotel ballroom with a bunch of your friends while Huey Lewis is playing and Matt Gaffari, the gold medal winning wrestler is standing right over here. And there's another random gold. If, if there ever could be such thing as a random gold medalist, right. they hired so many of them that they were random gold medalists just standing around. And here's the crazy thing. That wasn't even the best trip of recent memory. A year earlier, all of SI. And when I say all, I mean, reporters, writers, fact checkers, editors, business staff. Everyone was flown to Orlando as a big thank you for winning a National Magazine Award. Here's John Walters, another colleague of mine. So we leave on Monday night and different planes to get down to this hotel in Orlando. And the first thing we all find out is, and this is like, I'm not even 30 yet. Um, there's a hospitality suite, which soon we soon dubbed the hostility suite. And so it's this room up near, you know, the penthouse that they had just set up for SI staff with an open bar <laughs> and it got rowdy. Like, I think I stayed up till four or 4.30 the first night and they closed it after the second night because they were like, you guys are just being animal house. Like we can't, you know, too many complaints. <laughs> there are tons of stories from that trip. Uh, and even though it was only three days, it was, uh, it's one of those few times I've had in my life where you didn't want to fall asleep because you, felt like you were going to miss something. Fun three days, every day there were like, you could go to Disney World or you could go to Epcot Center or you could go, um, or you could go golfing or play hoops or anything you wanted. And the problem was like, everybody's too hungover to get like an early start of the next day. So I shouldn't say everybody, everybody under the age of 35. The one thing everybody will tell you about is the last night when Gary Smith and Rick Riley basically got us some school buses or buses and took us to a cheesy Holiday Inn lounge on a karaoke night. And this is the highlight of the trip. Like if you talk to anybody and they weren't, they don't mention that, then they weren't really on the trip. Franz Liszt got up and sang a song. I can't remember, it was like a sweet 60s ballad, but he sang it punk rock, like death metal. He just totally changed the whole mood of the song. He was screaming. And, you know, Franz Liz is one of those reasons why you work at, like, why when everybody says, was SI a great experience? Yeah, because I got to know Franz Liz. I'll never forget the next day I woke up around noon and I'm walking to breakfast and there's Flader and I think David Bauer and I'm going to say Dick Friedman. 
three so editors who were like in their late forties, and like Bauer pulls, like, "Can you come over?" And yeah, like they're sitting at it. They're sitting like in a lobby table, and they see me, and they say, "Were you were you at the karaoke night last night?" And I said, "Yeah," and Flater says, "Tell us everything so we can tell people we were there." <laughs> Like they already knew that this was legendary, and and I wish I had a better memory of it. I just remember it was one of the most fun nights of my life. The other thing that stands out for me that was hilarious was we had a reporter named Nancy Morgan. Were you there for Nancy Morgan? No, I know of her. Okay, she's an attorney now. I don't know what she's doing, but I think she's an attorney in California. Anyway, we're sitting in the hot tub, like Phil Taylor, myself, Nancy, a few other people, and we run out of beer. And Phil, who lives on the West Coast and we're in Florida, he says, uh, he says, well, I've got some beer in my room. And Nancy says, I'll go get it. So Phil stays down in the hot tub with us. Nancy runs up to his room and the phone rings. <laughs> Phil's married. <laughs> his wife calling from the West Coast. Nancy picks up the phone. Hello? <laughs> Is this Phil's Taylor's room? Yeah, he's not here right now. And Nancy, being just oblivious, comes back down with the beer and matter-of-factly mentions to Phil that his wife called. <laughs> so like, Phil just dashes out of the hot tub, runs upstairs. There were just moments like that that I wish I could remember more of them. SI was luxury personified. Come evenings, town cars would line up outside the building waiting to take us home on company dime. Every Sunday night, a fancy six-course meal would be catered for the staff. There'd be bullpen nights out where bar tabs went straight to Time Inc. Embarrassingly, we were even offered the opportunity to escort the models to the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Dish premiere party, which, and this is kind of pathetic, I once did. My memories of that night? All the women had 10-foot-long necks and smoke like chimneys. It was a bit underwhelming, but electrifying. The bragging points were enormous. My best friends from college were practicing law and working at banks, and I was rolling with the models. And, not to rub it in, we only worked a four-day week. One more thing. The Sports Illustrated holiday parties. Insane. Usually held at some fancy restaurant or hotel barroom. Tons of food. Tons of alcohol. Lots of hooking up. I wasn't getting laid much in those days. But I did get laid as a result of an SI holiday party. So, hey, Merry Christmas. Anyhow, looking back, my two Sports Illustrated running buddies were Jen Wolf, the woman I started with, and another reporter named Beverly Odin. Unlike Jen, Bev was a slice of humanity I'd never before encountered. She had been hired a few months after I arrived, and I remember someone whispering, Did you hear about the new reporter? She's an Olympian. Bev wasn't just an Olympian. She was a superstar. A four-time Division I college volleyball All-American at Stanford, the 1991 Honda Sports Award winner as the nation's best female player, and a starter on the 1996 U.S. Olympic women's volleyball team. Also at middle blocker from Irvine and Stanford University, number seven, Bev Odin. Interestingly, she came to Sports Illustrated to escape. My plan was to play in the Olympics, win a gold medal, then get a ton of money to play in Italy, play over there for a couple of years, and then come back to the United States to go to the um, 2000 Olympics in Australia. And then after that, I would decide whether or not I'm going back overseas and doing that again for a third Olympics. I was young, so I could have probably gone to three. And you were just burned out. No, it was just, no, I, it was a terrible experience and I hated everybody there and I didn't want to spend one more second. I broke my contract and I left. 
and I quit volleyball, surprised myself and quit volleyball. So I was pretty much out of work and had no idea what I was gonna do. I called one of my, uh, one of the people who wrote an article on me when I was in high school <laughs> to say like, I used to want to do like journalism and she was a sports, um, sports journalist. And I said, how would I go about doing this? She hooked me up with um, a headhunter who then hooked me up with Roy, what's Roy Roy's name? Roy Johnson. Roy Johnson, yes. He put in a good word with Bambi and they had like a year long, someone had gone on sabbatical. And so I, I filled that spot. It was supposed to be a year and I stayed for like almost three. Since we all lived on the Upper East Side, Jen, Bev and I walked home together most days. We would have these really intense debates about God and religion. Bev is a devout Christian. I'm a mediocre Jew. Jen is, uh, I'm not even sure she's anything. But the memories are magical. The three of us walking the streets of Manhattan, stopping to grab a cookie or a pretzel or whatever, chatting, arguing, laughing, living the life. And you and me and Bev, we were like, I feel like we were kind of nerdy compared to yeah. like, but we kind of knew it. And man, those walks home were great. And we do the, would you rather, like, would you rather, I remember like, would you rather have a voice box or a colostomy bag? Oh, yeah. Those were so fun. I felt pretty cool having that job. And it was such a great, like, guy meeting job. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah, I worked for Sports Illustrated. They'd be like, oh, and then they'd ask me questions. I'd be like, mm, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I think what I liked most about Jen and Bev was a sense of kinship. Bev had no designs on being the next Steve Russian. She just didn't want to play any more volleyball. And Jen would soon be reassigned to People Magazine because her sports knowledge was, well, I'll let her tell it. You know, I'd have to fact check, like, a hockey story and... I'm embarrassed to say, like, I'm Canadian and I don't know all the terminology. I didn't track hockey very well. And uh, an editor said, like, oh, so it was a hat trick. And I was like, uh, I'm going to have to check that. And it was very clear it was the same guy. <laughs> right. Like, no, it is. And then uh, it started to become really clear that I was not a uh, typical Sports Illustrated fact checker reporter. I was not going to be a writer there. <laughs> Wait, before I move on from Jen Wolf, who just sparks a thousand warm memories for me, I have to let her tell the story of the day her legacy was forever set in gold. It involves Kentucky and horses and cigar. Do you feel comfortable telling me the horse story? Ah, sure. <laughs> I have to remember. Okay, so I was on the horse beat and I got I was like, wow, everybody's traveling for these reporting gigs and how fun would that be? So I was trying to come up with a, a way to travel. You know, it was like my dream to travel for business and get to stay in a hotel room. And so they let me go and find out what was going on with Cigar, who'd won the Kentucky Derby and was sent to a stud farm to sire horse babies. But he was like, he couldn't get anyone pregnant. So... I went down. <laughs> it was an experience I will never forget. I have pictures because it was just astonishing how this system works. It's gorgeous. Kentucky is beautiful, amazing stables, amazing paddocks. So I got to meet Cigar, who's a very nice horse. And then I got to see him try to like impregnate this, this other horse. <laughs> and so they have a fluffer like in porn when you have a fluffer like it's a a girl i guess <laughs> that's the guy all riled up so they had 
her in one stall and Cigar in the other. And he's getting like into it. And, and then they bring him out into a, like an enclosed area with a dirt floor. <laughs> Barn? Not a stable? Yeah, like a stable-y kind of okay. thing. So they had to, and when, when they say hung like a horse, oh my God, it is like enormous, <laughs> like dragging on the ground kind of like, it's huge. So then they have to uh, help the horse get into the other horse. And the guy doing that, his name was Dickie. <laughs> it's like the weirdest thing. And I'm just like cracking up by myself because none of them have a sense of humor about it. It's very serious business. So I'm like, his name's Dickie? And the guy's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, never mind. <laughs> and then when, ah, it was so gross. Like when the, when Cigar like shot his load, they have to, pull him out to get a sample of it so it's like really weird to watch all this it was bizarre and then i wrote this uh <laughs> very unsports illustrated story about the whole experience you know about him shooting blanks and he's probably impotent and what a shame and somebody paid you know millions for him and now you know insurance has to pay up so it had all the the details but i did all these terrible puns like over and over uh and they couldn't run it they said i guess what i'm saying is as i moved up the masthead jen and bev had my back they were supportive and caring and even a little bit protective while digging through my old photo albums to prepare this episode i found a card from jen dated september 1997 she wrote you're an awesome writer jeff and you deserve every success you're going to find through your career i'm very proud to be your friend jen the reason that means so much to me is because back in the day Rising up the ranks of Sports Illustrated came with complications and awkwardness and clumsiness and some confusion. I think the best way I can explain this is to take a slight detour and tell the story of one of my all-time favorite colleagues, John Walters. Now, to refresh your memory, I arrived at Sports Illustrated toward the tail end of 1996 and I started as a reporter. The position immediately above me, one I was quickly promoted to, was writer-reporter. And when I got to SI, John was a writer-reporter and had more or less been locked in the bullpen for seven years ever since having arrived out of Notre Dame. And it made no sense whatsoever. John was a great guy, upbeat, funny, encouraging, and he also happened to be a hell of a writer. But for reasons unbeknownst to me, he wound up on some editor's shit list, or wrong side, or bad side, or I don't even know. But that shit happened a lot of the magazine. You could get hot like I did and be handed assignments left and right. Then you could screw something up, or maybe wear the wrong outfit, or say the inexact word, and suddenly you were cold product. Editors would have nothing to do with you. You were exiled to the doghouse. It kind of reminded me of the way Al Davis treated Marcus Allen with the Raiders. Great player gone invisible. Here's John. When he refers to Mulvoy and Colson, he means the two Sports Illustrated managing editors, Mark Mulvoy and his replacement, Bill Colson. You know, and, and there's, I'm not the only person who's had this trajectory, but you're really hot. And then for whatever reason, somebody doesn't like you and you're not so hot. And then... Once they slated me into SI View, I was, you know. SI View is the TV column, basically, the media. Which I never asked to do, but it made them a lot of money. And as far as Colson was a completely different animal than Mulvoy. Mulvoy was the guy who said, oh, go down to Birmingham. We'll give you a shot. They loved the job I did. I'm not sure if you were there yet. This was in the fall of 93. And I came back. So really quickly, like they had started a 
they decided to do like four pages every week on SEC football. Okay. And I was 26 and I had done a good job on a, on a story on sports center for them, a bonus. And Mulway decided to give me a shot based on this job I did for them. So I went down and, and, you know, as the kids say, we would say, no, I killed it for four straight months. I killed it. I came back and, and I was in like everyone's sweet, you know, sweet spot. This was 93. Uh, this was 93. Okay. And then, um, you know, I kept doing stuff and then Colson came aboard and they had this SIVU thing, which was going to make them millions of dollars a year. Uh, because it was a special ad with free delay. And I did that and they liked the job I did. But the problem was in the pre-internet era, Colson was never going to move me from that spot. And I could do that job in about a day and a half, if, if that. Right. So now I'm sitting around every day, like, what do I do the rest of my time? And Colson told me, I remember vividly when you and Wertheim and Wall were all promoted. And I think it was all together. Yeah. And I had been there so many more years than you. And it wasn't personal, but I said, like, I, I requested a meeting and I said, what do I, what do I have to do? You know, I'm in the magazine every single week. <laughs> and, and he said, well, you don't write long. I said, well, let me write long. We can't, we need you at SIVU. I said, so you're not going to promote me because I don't write long. You're not going to let me write long because this makes you so much money. That's not a very fair system, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I have my, sh my shot. I'm not going to, how many people dream of getting to write there or getting a chance there? I got my opportunity, so I don't want to blame anybody, but things happen. So I come along and I'm getting promoted on the quick. And meanwhile, guys like John Walters have to watch and congratulate me and on occasion probably check facts in my stories. The ultimate indignity. It could be brutally mean and unfair. And while John largely kept his frustration to himself, others didn't. At the time, it pissed me off. In hindsight, I can't blame them. It's funny, actually. The wife and I recently watched Cobra Kai, and the whole recurring theme of the show is whether, looking back, Daniel was actually the good guy and whether Johnny Lawrence was actually the bad guy. The Russo wouldn't leave it alone. At the Halloween dance, I'm sitting there minding my own business, he douses me with the water hose. I haven't seen the guy in months. and turns a water hose on my head. So I chase him down, try to put an end to things that night, right? Turns out the guy's got a karate master of his own. When I was at SI, I considered myself to be the good guy, and I reduced three bullpen colleagues to bad guy status. Cobra Kai, never die. Their names were Mark McCluskey, Matt Rudy, and Paul Gutierrez. All three preceded my arrival at SI, and, it felt at the time, all three took delight in tormenting me. I just have these memories of being mocked and ridiculed, or at least feeling as if I were being mocked and ridiculed. One instance in particular stands out, and Paul and I recently discussed it. If you don't know, Paul Gutierrez covers the Las Vegas Raiders for ESPN, and he's one of the best guys out there, a legitimate friend. So anyway, it's 1997, and I was lonely. I hadn't had a girlfriend in more than a year, and ugh, this is embarrassing. I started trying to meet women via an AOL dating chat room, which isn't as weird as it probably sounds because there was no Match.com or JDate or Farmers Only back in the day. So one day I'm in my office, sitting with my back to BJ Schechter, and I'm in an AOL chat room, chatting. And a woman asks who I look like. Now, there's no right answer for this, ever. I don't look like Brad Pitt. I also don't look like a human wart. I'm an average guy. So, I think for a minute, and I remember that my college girlfriend Heather used to say that I reminded her of Tom Hanks. Not physically, just demeanor. I guess. 
So type, type, type. I write, quote, my old girlfriend said I reminded her of Tom Hanks. And then, and I'm still not sure what I was thinking, I print out the correspondence to the hallway printer in the bullpen. And I forget about it. A few minutes later, I'm standing by my office and Matt, Mark, and Paul pass. This is a recent discussion with Paul. (laughs) One printer in the whole bullpen. (laughs) I printed it and I'm standing outside my office and you, Matt, and and McCluskey walk by and you just go, hey, Tom. And you just walk (laughs) by. Yeah, there, there was a rivalry. Oh <laughs> it was the state school wing, which again, Delaware should have been in the state school wing with Michigan State. And I went to a state school. I didn't exactly. even go to a good state school. I went to Delaware. <laughs> Rich Gannon would, would disagree with you, but I agree. I see what you're saying. At the time, it didn't feel funny. I was mortified, humiliated. I wasn't in on the joke. I was a joke. Why were these guys so fucking mean to me? What had I done to them? But then it got worse. In 1997, Paul had to take a leave of absence because of a horrible tragedy back home in California. And around this time, another way we bullpen dwellers were getting into the magazine was via catching up with small 400-wordish front-of-the-book weekly mini-articles that involved tracking down past cover subjects and updating readers of their whereabouts. Now, for a good while, I was the absolute king of catching up with. I think I wound up writing 35 of them, ranging from former Piston Center Bill Ambeer, he was coaching but still a douche, to former Raiders linebacker Jack Squirek, He owned a Cleveland-based janitorial services company. Anyhow, when Paul was gone, I pitched and wrote a catching up with on former Rams quarterback Vince Ferragamo. Ferragamo took a page from Bradshaw's Go For Broke book and hit Billy Waddy for a 50-yard game. I thought nothing of it. Seriously, I thought nothing of it. Just another chance to get in the magazine and advance my career. So Paul returns to Sports Illustrated and he sees I wrote about Ferragamo. And I'm in the hallway, and he's in the hallway, and he is pissed. This is Paul. I swear to God when I say this. (laughs) No, I believe you. And when you came back from a very awful situation, you were really mad at me because you felt like I stole your idea. And I remember vividly, I swear to God, we had a confrontation about it, and I went into Bambi's office, and I was like, please don't run this. I swear to God, like, don't run this. This is not worth it. I did. I said, I'm sure he's telling the truth. And I just didn't remember him pitching it. And I do not want you to run this and blah, blah. blah. And she was like, Jeff, don't be stupid. Blah, 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 blah. Right. That's right. And now we've joked about Vince Ferragamo for about 20 years, which is kind of yeah. kind of funny. 24 years because yeah. And, and, and again, I, I've, I've never held it against you since. It's just interesting the way that it goes. And, and my distinct memory is, you were getting in the magazine a lot with those catching up with. And I was, again, trying to figure, I'm like, look, if I just keep fact checking these and I don't have any challenge letters, I'm going to be good. I'm going to get noticed. That's not how it worked. You had to, you had to pitch things. You had to stand out from the crowd. So I remember going into your office, sitting down and asking you, Hey man, how are you doing these things? What are you doing? What, what's your, what's your game plan? You know, I wasn't trying to steal your shine or anything. I just want to know what it was. And I distinctly remember saying, because, you know, my all-time favorite quarterback as a kid was Vince Ferragamo. And, and I found that he's on the magazine and I, I'd love to pitch something like that. How would I do it? And then I left. I, I was gone for over a month. So that was literally the day before I left. And that happened. And when I came back, I threw myself into work. And I came up with like a couple different pitches and I pitched the Ferragamo thing. And Bambi came in and said, oh, I love this, Paul. But 
Jeff has already filed one on him. And that's when I just exploded. It pains me. It still pains me. Like it actually, like I vividly remember. And I was like, Oh my, I, I, because I didn't doubt you at all. Like I was just, yeah. it just had to be, it was just a brain freak. Cause there's no reason you'd actually steal someone's catching up with idea. Cause there are even. No, no. It, and, and it probably just was in your head because it was just so random because that was the thing was to find somebody random. Like I remember pitching Hulk Hogan. I'm like, uh, dude, he's still a superstar. We're not going to do catching up with on Hulk Hogan. Find somebody random. Okay. World be free. I got world be free. Uh, Vince Ferragamo, you know, and the funny thing about it is I saw Ferragamo last year at a Raiders game. And it's one of those few times where I actually got a little starstruck. <laughs> I walked up and I'm like, I'm, uh, uh, Mr. Ferragamo. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Paul Gutierrez. I, I cover the Raiders for ESPN. Uh, you know, I just got to tell you, you, you were my favorite player as a kid. And he looks at me and he smiles. He goes, man, you're really dating yourself. <laughs> we can laugh about it now. But at the time, Paul's anger was intense. And it felt like his guys, Matt and Mark, had it out for me. It reached a point where I just avoided them, avoided talking to them, avoided seeing them, just avoided because they were assholes and I was a good guy. But in hindsight, that's actually bullshit, fiction in my mind. Matt Rudy was a Michigan State kid who, like me, worked hard, loved writing, and didn't come from Ivy stock. He's actually from Saginaw. His dad worked in a factory. He arrived at the magazine a few years before I did, and he wasn't really given a fair shake. Again, that's how it could be there. Some fact checkers soared, some fact checkers banged their heads against the wall in frustration. So imagine being a guy like Matt Rudy. You're talented, you're hardworking, you've been there a while, and some cocky kid shows up, steals your buddy's Vince Ferragamo catching up with, lands plum assignments, and doesn't really show all that much empathy for those he's bypassing. Here, this is Matt, who's had a fantastic career as a golf writer, and who, like Paul, I very much like and respect. All right, I have a question. Did you hate me sure. when, I, when you were at Sports Illustrated? I hate you. I don't know. I, I don't think I hated you. Um, we certainly weren't buddies. Yeah. I don't, I mean, saying it's Lord of the Flies is too strong because it, because I don't, I don't think it was as much that, but, but, but there certainly was, um, it, what permeated week to week is that there was a finite amount of attention and space for everybody to get. Yeah. And I always, I found myself to be in situations where I was and aggrieved is too strong a word, but, but I found myself, offended by things that were happening to other people around me more so than what was happening to me. I felt like I was perfectly fine and responsible for my own stuff and getting in or not getting in. But, but I got far more intertwined in what, in relationships that other people were having than I, than what my 48 year old self would be. Dire entry, December 13th, 1997. Weird day yesterday. I got called into Colson's office where he promoted me to staff writer, a total, total shock. I've been at SI all of one year. Weird. So I was really psyched when he told me. But then I learned Grant Wall and John Wertheim were being promoted as well. That changed things. This is probably dumb, but I want to move up because of me doing kick-ass stuff and Colson seeing that, not because he wanted to promote some people. It's March 21st, 2021, and I just read that diary post for the first time in decades. My initial instinct was not to use it here because it's so ugly. Hey, asshole. You've been at Sports Illustrated for a year. You're being promoted to writer and you're upset because you're not the only one getting promoted to writer. You're upset because John Wertheim and Grant Wall, two amazing talents, are being promoted with you. What kind of ungrateful twat are you? But then I changed my mind because what the entry represents is youthful ambition gone too far. It's a 25-year-old kid half a lifetime ago thinking his shit didn't stink. I hate that guy. With the promotion, I left the bullpen for good. 
I no longer had to work out of the office. I no longer needed to check facts. I had waited home for editors to call me with assignments. Before long, I was writing the weekly Inside Baseball column and sort of serving as Tom Verducci's backup on the MLB beat. Every week, a different city, a different hotel, an expense account, sit-downs with Gary Sheffield and Sean Green, flying high and living the dream, World Series, All-Star Games. From there, the John Rocker story, the bad guys won, leaving SI to focus on books. I spent one year in the bullpen, just one year, a flash of time, a blur, and I wish, sitting here now as a middle-aged father and husband, with graying hair and an expanding waistline, and a daughter about to go off to college, that I'd had the maturity to better appreciate the experience, to not just chase a dream, but to enjoy it. I want to thank the participants in this week's special 200th episode of Two Riders Slingin' Yang, Jen Wolf, Matt Rudy, John Walters, Bev Odin, Paul Gutierrez, BJ Schechter, and Linda Ann Marsh. Also, thank you, dear listeners, for sticking with me in this podcast. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make zero dollars for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. <laughs>